Okay, Luke 23, 26 is where you are turning this morning. Did I get that right? Yes, that is right. Luke 23, 26. All right, so we are going to be continuing our Lent series. If you haven't been with us the last two weeks, we're doing a series leading up through Easter called Via Dolorosa. It is Latin for the way of grief. This is a road that is in Jerusalem that represents the way that Jesus walked to, uh, with the cross on the way to be crucified. Christians from around the world uh, have set this location as an act of pilgrimage. And though we can't physically go there, we are going to be walking through this journey through the scripture. Jesus' way of suffering on the way to the cross. Um, something that has been has helped mark the Via Dolorosa over the centuries has been what they call the Stations of the Cross, and there's different lists of what kind of is the Stations of the Cross. It's not like a it's not canonized, so you, you can't get it too wrong as long as it's in the Bible. Uh, so we're stopping at a few Stations of the Cross to meditate on the sufferings of Jesus as we head towards Easter together. On Ash Wednesday, we talked about Lent being a, a time to remember Jesus and His salvation. That's what Lent is all about. So we are doing that through prayer and fasting on Wednesdays. Um, Sam mentioned our worship night. That's this Wednesday night. We're still going to have our uh, 11 to 1 contemplative prayer time. If you haven't been, I dare you to come. God's here, and you should be here too. It is so rich. Even if you can come for just a couple of minutes, um, come and take communion and make some space. Bring Jesus an empty jar during your Wednesday lunchtime, and he wants to fill you with himself. I told you when I opened up the series a few weeks ago that um, I've got a friend who is working through his PhD right now, and as part of his research, he was telling me that he's been reading through uh, journals, uh, old Pentecostal journals, between the years 1906, which is when kind of the, the Pentecostal movement was born and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit here in the United States. And so he's reading journals from 1906 to 1919, which, uh, like I said, it was a time where there was a global pandemic and a world war happening, something we can be familiar with. So I know I'm repeating these things, but it is worth being reminded of as we journey down Via Dolorosa. My friend, he was telling me that uh, he's been impacted by finding that the, the early Pentecostals saw the power to endure suffering as a main function of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That yes, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a blessing, it came with power, it, uh, it, it came with boldness, it came with gifts and joy and all sorts of beautiful things, but equally and, and as essential, the gift of God that comes with the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was power to fellowship with Jesus in his sufferings. They said that as Jesus did, that we will all suffer with Jesus, and that if we don't suffer with Jesus, we will suffer a shallow walk with Jesus. Right. I wanted to read you an excerpt from a journal that he had shared from 1909. Most of us shrink from the fellowship of his sufferings, from that phase of Christianity. We pray for a way of escape. But you can measure the height of your spiritual life by the depths of your suffering. If you have not suffered and are not willing to suffer, you will miss much of the blessing God has for you. And if we would look forward to reigning with Jesus, we must be willing to suffer for his sake. We may not be called upon to suffer as the warrior Paul, for his is a terrible list. But suffering for the sake of Jesus is the promised heritage of every Christian. 
There is something about the sufferings of Jesus that cuts through the white noise of life. It cuts through the drama in our lives. It cuts through the desires of our flesh, and it brings us into deep fellowship and intimacy with Jesus. And that is worth the challenge and the discomfort of of meditating on the sufferings of Jesus. And that is my prayer for us this morning, that as we go down with Jesus, the Via Dolorosa, that it would cut through the white noise, cut through the drama, cut through the distractions of the flesh, and that we would find ourselves in a deep place of intimacy with the man, Jesus. So this morning, as we continue down Via Dolorosa with the third station of the cross that we are visiting, Simon helps Jesus carry the cross. Would you stand for the reading of the word of God? I had you turn to Luke. I'm going to read two verses from the other synoptic gospels before we get to Luke. The synoptic gospels are the three gospels that relay to us many of the same stories, many in the same order, and all three contain this story for us this morning. John doesn't have this story, but John is still about Jesus. Don't worry. So I'm going to start us in Mark. We'll do Matthew, and then we'll be... In Luke, where you are. Mark 15, 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Matthew 27, 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. Luke 23, 26. And as they led him away, They seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. We thank you for all that we've been able to do to participate with you as we've gathered together. We thank you for now this opportunity to turn towards your living and active word breathed out by you. We look to you, Holy Spirit, that you would make this word alive, that it would cut us, it would divide us, it would sharpen us and train us, exhort us, rebuke us, encourage us, that we might be perfect unto you. Lord, we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would remind us of Jesus this morning. Turn our eyes towards him. Turn our minds towards him, our hearts, our souls towards Jesus. Lord, I am praying that as we meditate on you, as we join you on the way of suffering, that our eyes would see you, that we would see you in front of us today, that we would know your presence, we would understand you, we would fellowship with you in your sufferings, and in doing so, Lord, that the white noise of life would be quiet, that lulls us to sleep. We're praying, God, that as we turn our attention towards you, that the drama of life would fade away, that what is not important would become unimportant to us. And Lord, we are asking that as we turn towards you, Jesus, that as our eyes are set on you, that we would be in deep intimacy with you, that we would know you, and that that would be the greatest desire of our minds, of our bodies, of our spirits and our souls. Lord, that every desire of the flesh would fade as we see you 
on the way of your suffering. And we do pray as that journal exhorts us that as we come to you, Lord, you would take us deeper and you would take us higher by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the beautiful name of Jesus, amen. You can be seated. No, this is weird, but does anybody else just sense the Lord? <sighs> Thank you, Jesus. I like, don't want to move too fast, you know? Oh, thank you, Lord. <clears throat> there is uh, tons of information that we would like to have about tons of things uh, that we don't find in the Bible, right? Don't you wish the Bible told you a few more things about life, <laughs> a few more things about the world, a few more things about yourself than it does? Don't you wish the Bible just told you who to vote for so we didn't have to argue about it? <laughs> Don't you wish the Bible would just tell you what school to send your kid to? Don't you wish the Bible would just name the person you're going to marry? Don't you just wish the Bible would tell you who's going to win March Madness this year so you could win some money? <laughs> but honestly, there, there's a lot of things the Bible doesn't tell us. Have you ever been annoyed by that? I have been. I've been frustrated by that. Like, why, why couldn't a few more things be a little more clear? And sometimes I'm like, this seems pretty important. Like, it seems worthy of being in there. I mean, the Bible's pretty big, but like, there's a lot that's not in there. There's a lot that the Bible doesn't exactly tell us. But this verse is in the Bible. This, this verse about this man, this bit of information about Simon, it is in the Bible. What is in the Bible versus all of those things is this. As they led Jesus away to be crucified, the Roman soldiers seized a man named Simon who was from Cyrene and was coming in from the country, and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Apparently, it is more essential for you to read in the Bible about Simon of Cyrene than the name of the person that you're supposed to marry. If it's in there, it must be important. If it's in three of the four Gospels, it must be important. If it's important, we should try not to miss it. I want to talk to you about three things this morning. Look at me giving you an outline. Number one, who is Simon of Cyrene? Number two, what is God trying to teach us by including him in the story? And number three, how should we respond? So who is Simon of Cyrene? Simon, number one, was a real historical person who lived in a real historical moment. This was a real guy, and this was a real thing that really happened. It seems that by virtue of including the names of Simon, and Mark's gospel includes the names of his sons, and by looking at different things across the New Testament, it makes reasonable sense that the Simon mentioned here, by the time these Gospels were written, would have been known by quite a few people in the church. Seems that both Simon and his sons probably would have been known by the folks first reading this Gospel. 
In the Gospel of Mark, it seems that he's mentioning Simon, whose sons were Alexander and Rufus, as if to kind of say, like, Simon, you know, Alexander and Rufus's dad. You, 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 know, you can go ask them about it. These names, Alexander and Rufus, are referenced in other parts of the New Testament, and you can't determine for certain that it's one-to-one, but you can kind of connect some dots and make some reasonable connections here. Church tradition says some different things about Simon, but there's a lot of reason that we can assume that the Gospel of Mark includes these names as if to say, this really happened, and you know it does because you can go ask the guys who are involved in the story. And it's details like these that we don't want to miss and skip over because it's details like these that can build our confidence in the truth of the Gospels and the accuracy of the story and the accuracy of the accounts because it's details like these that would make it incredibly difficult to get away with making this stuff up. You don't say to the crowd that's first reading it, you know, Alexander and Rufus, their dad, and everyone's like, who's Alexander and Rufus? Church tradition makes the suggestion that the rest of Simon's life specifically was lived as an evangelist and that he died as a martyr for the gospel. The second thing we are told about who is Simon of Cyrene is that he was a foreigner. He was an African from the city of Cyrene who served Jesus in his final hour. The Bible tells us that he was of Cyrene. This is a city in North Africa, so not from the region that everybody else is probably from in the middle of the crowd that Simon finds himself in. There were Jews living in Cyrene at the time, and that name could be Jewish or Gentile, so we don't know exactly his ethnicity, but we know he didn't grow up around Jerusalem. He wasn't of Jerusalem. He was of Cyrene. So we can't tell for sure, but he probably was from a different ethnicity from the rest of the crowd. Based on the way that it was written and the fact that he's identified as such, we can assume he didn't look like everybody else. Number three, we know about Simon of Cyrene that he is coming in from the field. He's coming in from the field, which means he wasn't part of the crowd that had just been calling for Jesus' crucifixion. He had probably been minding his own business most of the day. And he's coming into town as the crowd is coming out. So he probably was just trying to do his thing and just kind of got swept up and caught up into what was going on one way or another. Simon wasn't planning on being there. Simon wasn't aimed at being there, involved in what the crowd was doing. Simon was not there because he hated Jesus. He was just there which means he probably wasn't one of the people shouting, screaming, spitting, kicking. And the fourth thing we learned about, we learned about Simon of Cyrene is that he was forced to carry the cross. He was forced to carry the cross. I mean, imagine the injustice that Simon feels in this moment. The anger, the fear, the frustration, the embarrassment Could there have been a racial element to Simon's selection? Again, we don't know for certain that he wasn't Jewish, but he most certainly didn't look like the Romans who called him out. The soldiers who seized him. Was this the first time 
that he had been unjustly selected because he didn't look like the guys who had authority over him? Imagine the pain of the moment for Simon. He's forced to carry this cross, and he follows Jesus, forced by the powers of the world to suffer completely unjustly, but yet somehow compelled by the presence of Jesus to walk it out. I wonder, I can't know, and I don't know if you can know either, but I wonder if it was this participation in the sufferings of Christ that ended up bringing his, him and his sons unto salvation. What is God trying to teach us by including this part of the story? One thing that we can learn from this story is that carrying the cross behind Jesus is a beautiful and painful picture of our calling as disciples. Luke's gospel specifically says that Simon carried the cross behind Jesus. Like uh, Sam showed us last week, it's also in the gospel of Luke, as, as well as other places, but where Luke makes sure to include what Jesus' exhortation to us, if anyone would come after me, he must pick up his cross and follow me. Simon didn't just see Jesus suffering, he partook in Jesus' suffering. And we must as well. We must die to self, be crucified with Christ, participate in his sufferings, crucify the flesh, and put off the old self. Number two, we can learn that the call to suffer for Jesus is often sudden and costly and seemingly random. Most of the time that you get caught up in suffering, you weren't planning on it. Most of the time that you suffer, it just kind of hits you like a tornado and sucks you right in. Most of the time that you're suffering, you don't have time to prepare for it. Most of the time that you suffer, you don't get to choose whether you're going to suffer or not. Most of the time you're suffering, nobody asks you if it's fair or not. Most of the time that you're suffering, nobody asks you if you have something else to be doing or not. Most of the time we suffer for Jesus. It is often sudden and costly. And so often it seems random. And so often that's what makes it so hard. Number three, we can learn that Simon's help to Jesus was temporary relief, but in another way, he also added to the sufferings of Jesus. Paul said in one of his letters, basically, I'd rather die and go to heaven than live this life, but if I'm going to be alive, I'll live to be fruitful unto you. I wonder how badly Jesus wished he would have just died in that moment. It's the only reason the Romans would have had somebody else carry the cross. They're looking at Jesus and they can see he's on the edge. They have orders to crucify this man. The crowd wants him hung on a cross and he's about to die on the way. Was it compassion that, they, that made them pull in Simon? I doubt it. More likely... It was deeper depths of cruelty than we can imagine that compelled the Roman soldiers to grab Simon by the arm and force him onto the ground to pick up Jesus' cross so that he just wouldn't die quite yet. 
But in Jesus, we see that though the suffering continue, we can continue. When we look at Jesus, we see that when the suffering continues, God calls us to continue. We can see that when the suffering continues, God will help us endure the sufferings. How should we respond? How do we respond to all of this? Whoever Simon was and wherever he was from, all of what made him who he was must have been burning in this moment. You can almost feel as you think about it now, as we think about who Simon was, as we think about what's happening in the moment, and as we don't just read over this verse, but we try to jump in and understand why is this in the story. As you try to relate to Simon and understand Simon, you can, you can start to get a little bit of a taste of the anger, of the rage, of the weariness, of the emotions he must have been feeling in this moment. The disappointment, the frustration, and the pain inside of him that he's shouting through speechless eye contact with that wretched soldier who has his hand on his arm, forcing him to the ground to pick up another man's cross in front of everybody. This isn't right. Why me? I didn't ask for this. Again, they call me out again. I hate this. I hate these people. I don't even know this man. What am I doing here? I'm just trying to come in from my feet. Like, I don't even know what's going on. And he bends down with strong hands to sling this heavy cross across the nape of his neck. And as he bent down to grab this cross, these fire-filled eyes must have looked up the road and seen what could have only been but just a few feet in front of him. The barely alive remnant of what by this time would have been very difficult to call a man. The naked body, the shallow breathing, the weak, guttural moans and groans of death coming quickly, the smell of flesh, the color of the blood. The blurry line between life and death. The crowd is watching, but Simon was close enough to see Jesus. The crowd was shouting, but Simon would have been close enough to hear Jesus. We aren't told this explicitly, but I just can't imagine that there is any way 
that when Simon bent down to pick up that heavy cross, he didn't make eye contact with Jesus. Simon, a man whose body is oozing with health and strength and whose eyes are burning with anger and confusion at the world, meets the face of Jesus. A man whose body is oozing blood and death, but whose swollen eyes are flooded with the steadfast love of God. What, what did Jesus hear when Simon's eyes looked into his? What did Jesus' eyes say when Simon looked into his? Who was the one crying out for help? Who was the one giving comfort? Two men on their hands and knees on Via Dolorosa. Imagine what it would have been like to see Simon a few years down the road before his martyrdom. Imagine being in the house one day, gathering for church a few years later. Wait, you're Simon? As you sit down to take communion together and talk about the apostles' teaching, to fellowship and to pray, you're Simon. Simon of Cyrene. Alexander and Rufus' dad. Imagine sitting at the table a few years down the road with Simon. Simon, what was it like? What was it like to carry the cross of our Lord? Tell me, I want to know, what did you see? What did you hear? What did you feel? What did you smell? What did you taste? Tell me what it was like, Simon. Here we are at the table of the Lord to eat of his body and his blood. What was it like? What was it like to join with him in his suffering? Imagine the pain of hearing him remembering and recounting the brutality of that moment. Imagine hearing him describe the thoughts that he was having, the feelings that he was experiencing, the emotions that were burning inside of him. Imagine him sharing about waking up from the dreams he must have had throughout the years of that moment of locking eyes with Jesus kneeling on Via Dolorosa. Imagine watching Simon's face twist and turn between tears and smiles. Imagine hearing Simon's voice go up and down as he tries to describe to you what it was like to carry the cross of Jesus Christ. And imagine how while you sat at that table with Simon and watched him 
and listen to him. Imagine how you would wish that it would have been you. I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have been there. In all the carnage and the gore, in all the pain and the struggle, in all the fear and all the emotions, none of it would matter. On this side of it, I just wish I could have been there, Simon. I wish I could have been you, carrying his cross, face to face with God, joining with him in his sufferings. My friends, you can. You can be there with him. We can. We can fellowship with him in his sufferings. And we must. We must. We must fellowship with him in his sufferings. We must fellowship with him in the death of obedience, the cross of persecution, the pain of being hated and misunderstood, the endurance of faithfulness, the commitment to holiness, the sacrifice of praise, the conviction of faith, the longing of hope, the pouring out of love. We must fellowship with him and carry his cross. We live in a world where people are constantly dividing and building coalitions based on their painful experiences. If you have shared my pain, you are my friend. If you haven't felt my pain, then you are not one with me. Our suffering has a powerful way of defining how we orient ourselves in the world and in relation to others. This is true, and this can be beautiful, and this can be powerful. When we have suffered through something with someone, we have a unique and strong bond with them. When someone hasn't suffered what we have suffered, we can have a hard time understanding them or believing that they understand us. This is true. But we are in a world that is taking that too far and is encouraging us to unite with those who have suffered with us and divide from those who have not. Instead of using shared suffering as a way to love one another well, groups with shared pain or suffering are using that shared pain or suffering to divide against everybody else. Let's unite against the Democrats because Biden is a disaster. Let's unite against the Republicans because Trump is an idiot. Let's unite against white people because they are racist against us. Let's unite against black people because they called us racist. Let's unite against the church because that pastor did something wrong. That person was offensive to you and to me. Let's hate him together. Have you suffered, Mike? Have you suffered like me? Good. It's you and I against the world. Jesus' prayer for us before he went to the cross was that we would be one. One with him and one with each other as he and the Father are one. His prayer is answered at the marriage table of the Lord where we are all invited not because we are great but because of his grace. Where we are all united in eating his body broken for us and drinking his blood poured out for us. We're all joined together by one spirit into one body with Christ as the head, made pure and spotless together as a beautiful bride, dressed in his robes of righteousness, washed white as snow.
He is aiming to bring people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to the foot of the throne where we will all look and see standing a lamb as if slain, and we will cry out together with all of the saints and the elders and the heavenly creatures, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Every racial, social, economic, political, and personal divide finds its opportunity to be bridged at the cross of Jesus Christ. Will we bow down, see this truth in his eyes, join with him in his sufferings, and carry that cross? Will we be reconciled to God at the cross of Jesus Christ? Will you receive his forgiveness? Will you receive his new birth? Will you receive his adoption as sons? Will we be reconciled to one another at the cross of Jesus Christ? Will you lock eyes with him in your pain and find that he knows you and he knows your pain? Will you allow what your eyes see in that moment to be transformed by what you see and hear in his? Let us love God in our sufferings, church. Let us love God in his sufferings presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. Let us love God in our own sufferings, church. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, we, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we, now, we have now received reconciliation. We must love him in our sufferings. And let us love one another in each other's sufferings. Let us love one another in each other's sufferings, listening with patience, strengthening with compassion, encouraging with grace, understanding with humility, and praying with faith. Imagine listening to Peter talk about his moments in the boat with Jesus. Imagine listening to John talk about his moments around the table with Jesus. Imagine listening to Mary talk about her moments at the bedside with Jesus. Imagine listening to Simon 
to talk about his moments carrying the cross of Jesus. Whatever your suffering is, and whenever your suffering comes, remember him. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Hold fast to your faith. He is with you, and he is with you in your suffering. And in that moment, imagine what it's going to be like in just one short moment from now when you will be at his table with all the saints who all have their own stories of what it's been like to carry the cross of Jesus. Everyone unified around the table, everyone with a mighty story to tell, but all anyone wants to do is behold him. Look into his eyes. Sit at his table. Feast on his body and his blood. And cry out for all of eternity. Holy, holy, holy. Will you stand as we end our time together? Jesus' invitation to you this morning is very simple and it's very clear. Come. Come to Jesus. Whatever you're doing, whatever you're going through, whoever you are, wherever you're from, whatever it needs to look like, come to Jesus. The invitation is open. By the sufferings of Jesus, he has opened the door to the throne of grace that you might approach boldly with your sufferings. You're invited this morning. Come to Jesus. Come with your sufferings. Come with your pain. Come with your discouragement. Come with your confusion. Come in your weakness. Come in your anger. Come in your rage. Come. Come with your cross. And kneel down. And meet eyes with Jesus. And let him speak to you. Let him speak to you. Let him teach you. Let him encourage you. But most importantly, just let him meet you. Let him meet you on your way of suffering. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come up as we worship. If you need prayer for anything, come and get prayer. If you need to come and kneel at the face of Jesus, you're welcome to do that. But let's all of us come to Jesus.